Let us pray. Our Father, may we not be conformed to this world, but instead we ask to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we may prove what is your good and acceptable and perfect will. Lord, grant us such a heart that we would fear you and always keep all your commandments, that it might be well with us and with our children forever. Father, bless us to be meek, that we may inherit the earth. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Be reading from verse 1. From Luke chapter 24 through to verse 35, the title of today's message. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. You see there our verse of focus is verse 12. Please listen carefully. This is God's holy and infallible word. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near And went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a mighty prophet indeed and word before God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now, it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread Blessed it, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, 
and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So today we will not only go with Peter there into the empty tomb, but we'll take a review of Peter's life and go back through the moments of his life that are given to us in the book of Luke and by God's grace get into the momentum of this man's life in the book of Luke, learn what kind of man he was, see the lessons in his life, see the Deeply important event that this is in his life there at this empty tomb. Take a look at a few of the scenes after the empty tomb that Luke gives to us. One briefly in Luke and then the first encounter with Peter that we have in the book of Acts. We'll seek to learn from Peter, examine ourselves and grow up ourselves as a result of looking at his life. And as usual, you know, some questions for us to consider ourselves that God's spirit may prick our own consciences and that we may be opened to be changed and transformed as was Peter. So first of all, a review of Peter's life in the book of Luke. See, I have them listed for you there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve moments that we'll look at in the book of Luke. We'll start with Luke chapter 5, the miraculous catch by the lake of Gennesaret, where Peter is humbled. And for those of you who know, that's a special story for our family, preaching that sermon the day that y'all encouraged us about some very important decisions in our life, as you will see, verses 1 through 11. So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. And saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net." And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. So we see here uh, Simon, the fisherman, a professional fisherman. He has partners. He's an excellent fisherman, at least good enough to have a business, making money for his family. And he knows fishing. And this is our first introduction to Simon here in the book of Luke. And the first words out of his mouth is to correct Jesus. We have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. So he submits to Christ, but he gets the word in. And so this is our introduction to Peter. He's a bit of a know-it-all. He's one who's quick to speak and slow to listen. That characterizes him. But we also see something else about his life that he appears to be genuinely, quickly humbled when the truth comes to him. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He was humbled. Next we see in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, Jesus chooses his 12 apostles. And Simon is listed first. 
And we see here that Jesus names him. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them, he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter. And Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. So we see here that he's listed first. He was a natural leader. We also see here, very importantly, Jesus' gracious love for humbled know-it-alls. And he demonstrates this personal attention to Simon by naming him Peter. Did he have names for the other apostles? Uh, Probably. But the one here that's laid out for us is Peter, which of course means rock. So there's a lot more meaning there as well in that particular name that Jesus gives to Peter. So Peter's life now begins to take on the personal touch of Jesus. And this naming of Peter is an important part of his life story. And Christ calls him Peter throughout uh, most of the engagements with him. But you'll see from time to time he brings back Simon. You notice there in Matthew, excuse me, in Luke chapter 5 that he was primarily called Simon. Moving on, Luke chapter 8, verses 43 to 46, Peter questions Jesus in the midst of the throngs. And uh, we see here again this, this if you will, this uh, too quick to speak, uh, the one who always says what everybody's thinking. Now, a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any came from behind and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you. And you say, who touched me? But Jesus said, somebody touched me for I perceived power going out from me. So we see Jesus uh, being questioned by Peter. Peter's the one who's frequently questioning Jesus like this compared to the other disciples. But next in Luke chapter 8, verses 49 through 56, we can continue to see Peter honored by Christ. He's listed, uh, he's chosen with James and John and listed first again to witness the resurrection work of Christ. The text says, while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, Do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep, she is not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So we see Peter is honored by being invited into this special demonstration of Christ's power. And it's important to remember that Peter saw this resurrection up close like this as we trace through these moments of his life. In Luke chapter 9, we see Peter being the one who confesses Jesus Christ as the Messiah. In this case, we see it was good to be the one who spoke first. Peter is honored in this sense. His faith is demonstrated here. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them saying, who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And so we see this rock of faith, trusting that Jesus is the foretold Messiah. And so we see this as kind of the central focus of who 
Peter is. And in some, in some ways, this is a bit of a, the point of a chiasm about Peter's life in some regards. Not perfect, but you know the way the Hebrews, uh, when they would write, they would emphasize that. And so, Peter sees Jesus Christ as the Christ and declares it. And there's this faith there that Peter has. But he has a lot to learn. After this, Peter is honored again in verses 28 through 36 of chapter 9. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So you remember he's there for the transfiguration. Again with James and John seeing this astonishing event. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. So Peter with James and John, a witness of resurrection, Peter with James and John here on the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing the glory, hearing the voice of the Father and saying silly things, being the one so quick to speak as usual. He was trying to find something to say that would fit the occasion. And then in chapter 12, Peter questions Jesus about the meaning of a parable. We see in verse 41, Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us? Or to all people. This is the parable about the servants being ready for when the master returns from the wedding. And Jesus, uh, excuse me, and Peter, as usual, is the visible, curious one. So it's just another brief moment in his life where he's the one who speaks up. And then in Luke chapter 18, Peter declares that they have forsaken all to follow Jesus. Perhaps, perhaps this is a bit of his pride. Showing up here. Perhaps he's being a little boastful. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful. So this is the rich young ruler. And he's told him to give everything away and come and follow him. When Jesus saw that he became, saw that he became very sorrowful. He said, how hard it, it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. So there's another moment where Peter's the one to speak up. He's visible and perhaps even it's an example of his pride. Look what we did, Lord. And then in Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 13, we see that he is honored again, this time only with John. They're chosen to prepare the, pass, the Passover and to experience this special providence that Jesus told them to expect. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, When you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there. Make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. So here we see Peter honored with John to be the two who get to serve in this fashion and observe this great providence. And they're obedient. They go and do what they're asked to do. Then we come into these uh, intense moments in the life of Peter. We've looked at them before. Jesus predicts Simon's thrice denial. 
This is at the Last Supper. Jesus says, Simon, Simon. Note he's calling him Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. So note that Jesus calls him Simon, Simon, referencing his name before Jesus had renamed him. The suggestion is, will Peter go back to being Simon? Forget Jesus and leave him for good. But here in this text, there's a word of encouragement from Jesus. Peter will return to Jesus and strengthen his brethren. We see again here Christ, uh, excuse me, uh, Peter's pride is on display. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. You can uh, see the sincerity, can't you, in what he's saying? But he didn't know himself. He didn't know himself. He believed better of himself than he should have. He hadn't learned this lesson. We talked about that when we went through this section, when, we, when I preached through this section. So then we move on after the Lord's Supper, after Christ has prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has arrived and the show of force of the soldiers is in place and Peter cuts the ear off the high priest's servant. Now we know it's Peter from John chapter 18. Luke says it this way. Going back to Christ's words to Judas. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So again, we see Peter, the leader, the first to act, but not understanding and demonstrating pride and zeal without knowledge and even shedding the blood of Malchus here in this situation. And certainly it stands as a harbinger of what is to come in the rest of that evening. Peter denies Jesus three times and weeps bitterly. The text says in chapter 22, having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you also are of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. So we see in this weeping bitterly that Peter has come to know himself better. He's come to understand that he cannot accurately predict his own behavior, his own behavior. His thoughts, his emotions betray him. And he does the opposite of what he said he would do. And as we mentioned before, Peter's life here in these scenes, the demonstration of trusting in himself and in, in, instead of trusting in God. He had faith, but he needed more faith. He had faith in Christ as the Messiah, but he didn't have faith in Christ everywhere in his life. So like we've seen with the women at the tomb, like we've seen with the apostles who denied the women's message. He didn't have the faith necessary for the situation that the Lord took him through. Then we come to today's text. 
but Peter. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. So let's take a look at these words. But Peter. It seems, doesn't it, that the first-time reader of Luke's gospel, this Theophilus, would certainly have been wondering about Peter at this time, yes? Perhaps he had heard rumors of what had happened with Peter, but he's reading, and here it's, what's going on? Last thing we saw, he was weeping bitterly, right? What's going to happen with him? Where, where was he? What is he doing? Will Peter end up as a traitor like Judas? Will he go that far? Will Jesus lose two of the 12? Or will he return? And of course, close readers will remember Christ's Last Supper prophecy that Peter would return. When you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So we anticipate this moment is the beginning of Peter's return to Christ. As we read this, we go, yeah, here it is. So Peter's dawning faith in Christ and greater understanding of what it means for him to be the Christ is contrasted with the ugly unbelief of the other apostles who had persecuted the women. Do you see that? But Peter. So we see Peter being set out here as the one of the apostles who's beginning to have the dawning faith first. Because remember what they had said, their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. Why do you run to a tomb to look inside of it if there's not some sense that maybe what these women are saying is true? So Peter is set out here. So before, he's weeping bitterly as the one who denied Christ. And what, what shame for him told that he would deny him standing up I'll never deny you and then going and doing it cutting off the ear just so impetuous so out of control and something now is different he's being honored in the text there's a transition happening here so what does he do he arose and he ran to the tomb. Peter arose and ran to the tomb and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves and he departed marveling to himself at what had happened. So before we see him running away from Jesus, right? Separating himself from Christ. And where does he go now? You know, associating with Jesus was the dangerous thing. Even in his death. He had to have known this. It seems to not matter to him at this point in time. The threats don't seem to capture as much of his attention at this time. Something else has captured his attention at this point in time, brothers and sisters. John 20 gives us some more details about this moment. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them. So she came to Simon Peter. Right, he's singled out there. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. So in Luke, we hear only of Peter running. And, you know, we've, we've laughed before, haven't we, about Peter and John in heaven. And Peter's like, I can't believe you put that in there. I mean, you need to put that part in there. Uh, I look forward to meeting these two men and hearing about their relationship. And I don't know why. I don't know why that's, I mean, that's in the scriptures for a reason, right? I mean, maybe it's just so we can laugh about two men who love each other, right? And probably had banter like that. I don't know what the purpose is that John got there first. Um, but I do love that particular portion of scripture. Um, but we see Peter is running. And I, and I guess one of the points there in John 20 is that Peter ran fast. He ran fast. He didn't just jog. They were both going at it. 
right? Almost like a race, right? They were going hard. And Henry says, Peter now ran to the sepulcher who but the other day ran from his master. And so this is the great contrast that we see in every life, not just in Peter's life. Is it a life characterized by always running to Christ and always being humbled and always learning and always growing? Or is it a life of stagnation, staying distant from Christ? Brothers and sisters, note the eagerness of genuine faith and repentance to be near to Christ. Peter did not walk. He didn't go about some other errand on the way there. One thing only occupied Peter at this point in time. He wanted to know the truth. Specifically, he wanted to be near to Christ. If Christ is alive, Peter's thinking, I've got to go find him. So Peter enters the tomb. Note that he doesn't just stop and look at the stone that's rolled away. He goes in the tomb. Last he'd heard, there were some angels around. Maybe he's curious to see if the angels are around. Of course, he's curious to see if the tomb is empty. And probably like the women before, he looks in every nook and corner of that cave to make sure there's no dead body there. But what does he see stooping down? So he had to stoop down. Of course, there's symbolism there, isn't there? He had to stoop down. What does he see? He saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. We see this moment also given to us in John 20. And he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. So then Peter, you see, went in. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. About this, Matthew Henry says, he looked into the sepulcher and took notice how orderly the linen clothes in which Christ was wrapped were taken off and folded up and laid by themselves, but the body gone. He was very particular in making his observations as if he would rather credit his own eyes than the testimony of the angels. One thing to note here is that this stolen body deception that would be circulated by the Pharisees is essentially undone by the presence of Christ's grave clothes left neatly within the tomb, folded, arranged. Certainly it doesn't disprove the idea of a stolen body, but it certainly makes it a lot less likely. Why would you unwrap the body and fold things up neatly before you took it away. So what happens next? Well, Peter departs marveling to himself and we're left with some more questions in our mind after this. Marveling to himself at what had happened. So in chapter 20, we see John believing. But, uh, of, of John, we see John believing. But here in chapter 24 of Luke, we see Peter still marveling. Marveling to himself. This is to wonder to, to wonder at something. Uh, and the root of this is, is a marvel or a wonderful thing. So think about something that you've seen and you look at it and you marvel at it, right? I don't know, um, often I'll think about the back of the eye and the retina and I'll just marvel at God. Or uh, I'm sure you have ways that you marvel as well. So Peter is going through a transition here, Okay. So when we go from fantasy to reality, we go through a time of marveling. And it will vary from person to person what that time is like for them. You recall for the women, they were perplexed. They were afraid even. So this time frame can include a lot of very intense thoughts, confusion even. Now, we see it for Peter more on the positive side of things marveling at this wonder. So when reality breaks through our unbelief, and this is what God is doing as he's sanctifying us. Unbelief means in the areas where you're not trusting Christ, you're living in fantasy. It's not, it's not like there's a vacuum there. There's something else you've created to fill that spot that you need to be true because of your own sin 
whether, whatever it might be. You need that to be true, to take yourself through it in a way where you feel secure. You feel safe. You feel good about yourself. So when reality breaks through our unbelief, shattering this fantasy, throwing aside our unbelief, we'll go through a phase of marveling often. Now John it seemed pretty short. Each new time God grows our faith, we will marvel again and again in some ways because reality is always better than fantasy. It will always be good news, always, as he brings us into the world of faith and out of the world of unbelief and fear. So, brothers and sisters, what fantasy of unbelief have you constructed for yourself? Could there be unbelief house of cards that you've built up for yourself? That whole world that you've built that you have put your faith in instead of putting faith in God? Now, ask yourself this question. If God loves you, what will he do regarding this fantasy world that you've built for yourself? For me, what will he do? Well, he, in his kind and loving and fatherly way, sometimes with severity, but always because of his kindness and his mercy, he will topple the house of cards. He will bring it down. And it will be this process that we go through. And may God grant us, like Peter, to always be on the path of growing faith so that even though there's perplexity, even though there's fear, it's, it's also with a marveling. Okay, wait a minute. Reality is a wonder. It's a marvelous thing to live in God's truth, in God's world, the real world. So what, what happens next? You see, he's departed. So we're left there to wonder in curiosity what will happen next in Peter's life. So I'm sitting here preparing the sermon and I'm thinking, okay, we got to go a little bit further. We have to see a little bit more of this in Peter's life. So what are the next two scenes in Peter's life after today's text? And, and then a final statement about Peter. So Luke 24, Simon is the first apostle to see the resurrected Christ. Did you know that? He's the first apostle to see the resurrected Christ. Um, so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. So these are the two, two uh, disciples who had gone to Emmaus and found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Matthew Henry says that Peter had a sight of him before the rest of the disciples before the rest of the disciples had appears in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, where it is said he was seen of Cephas, then of the 12. The angel having ordered the women to tell Peter of it particularly, we see that in Mark 16, for his comfort. It is highly probable that our Lord Jesus did himself presently the same day appear to Peter, though we have no particular narrative of it to confirm the word of his messengers. This he had related to his brethren. You know, the, the angels had said, he's risen. This he had related to his brethren, but observe, Peter does not hear proclaimant. So they say, and has appeared to Peter. Going back to Matthew Henry. Observe, Peter does not hear proclaimant and boast of it himself. He thought this did not become a penitent, but the other disciples speak of it with exaltation. The Lord is risen indeed. Really. It is now past dispute. No room is left to doubt it. For he has appeared not only to the women, but to Simon. So you notice this very talkative man has nothing to say in this moment. You have to get a sense that he knew that he deserved to be last, not first. And that he had made such a fool of himself. And I think it's so beautiful how the scriptures leave this conversation with Jesus out. 
between Jesus and Peter. Do you wonder if maybe in heaven they might share that with us? I don't know. I don't know. I I would certainly love to know about that moment when Peter first saw Jesus alive. You see, Peter had to have known that he would have been just like Judas. He had to have known it. He had to have known that when at this point, some part of him understood he proclaimed Christ not because of anything good in himself. So he's waking up to God's grace. And it just silences him. It appears to just silence him. Now, of course, maybe he spoke and the scriptures didn't just didn't mention it. But Luke does something different here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says nothing. So in Mark 6, just so you see there, uh, to go to the scriptures that Henry has quoted, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul speaking of this, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also had received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. What grace, what grace the life of Peter reveals to us. So what happens next? Well, in Acts chapter 1, it's time for us to hear Peter speak again. Verse 15, and in, these, and in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of names was about 120, and said, men and brethren, The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Going on with Peter's words in verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. I don't recall Peter quoting scripture before this, do you? I'm sure, I'm not saying he never did, but it's not reported in the book of Luke, is it? So what is Peter now relying upon? The word of God. Where's Peter's confidence now? More, we're seeing, not in himself, more in the word of God. And so he's dug into the word and he's learned the word and and now they're making a plan. They're applying the word of God and making a plan to have a 12th apostle. And yet, you might stop here and think, wow, Peter has arrived. No, (laughs) no. There's a lot more for him to learn. If you know the story of the book of Acts and you know what happened in the book of Galatians, there's more marveling to come for Peter. More moments where he has his fantasy world that gets crumbled down by God and and he repents and grows. Um, It is beautiful that the last of the apostles corrects the, the first one to be mentioned in the list of apostles, the first one to see the resurrected Christ. Uh, Paul uh, describes himself as the last, the least of the apostles. And he does correct him, though, there in, in the book of Galatians. And we'll look at that. We'll talk about that in the future. So, <clears throat> may the Lord now grant each one of us for these truths about Peter to be brought by his spirit into our own lives, into our own families, that we'd grow. So, one of the most obvious questions would be is, are you a know-it-all like Peter? Okay, so that's a question for you to ask yourself. Um, Repetitively questioning the Lord and his word instead of believing it. Um, We see silly words come out of Peter's mouth. The transfiguration, is that true of you? Um, Peter was talkative. And this is something that, you know, those of us who are talkative need to watch out for. Where there's many words, the scriptures say there is much sin. So, 
Are you quick to speak and slow to listen? Are you the visible one? When, when, when there's groups, do people think of you as the one who's the one to speak up? Now, is that always wrong? Of course not. <clears throat> but it does appear to us that this pattern demonstrates pride. <clears throat> that pattern. <clears throat> Have you ever been humbled low? looking back and realizing that you actually thought you knew better than Jesus Christ? Has that ever happened? Like, I know how to catch fish, Lord. Thank you very much. I mean, Jesus, you stick to your realm of life, okay? I mean, you're the preacher and the pastor and everything, and I'll take care of the practical stuff, okay? Have you experienced the personal touch of God's love? His personal eye upon you. I mean, he, he has a name for you. You are his beloved. His church, us united, we are his beloved. But, you know, you individually, you are his beloved as well. Even as a know-it-all. <laughs> Especially as a know-it-all. <laughs> we see that's what he calls Peter by name after he's already corrected him about how to fish. He did call him master. He did do what he was told. He did humble himself and repent. You see, I think a lot of us think the promises of God are for everybody else. I think a lot of us think the promises of God are for everybody else. I think Peter's story demonstrates to us that the promises of God are for all of his beloved children. And that he will, he will fulfill his promises to you. Now, it may crash down your fantasy world in the way that he fulfills his promises to you. <clears throat> How do you respond when the Lord honors you? You see, Peter's honored, right? And it appears as though at that phase of his life, it led him to have great confidence in his ability to go to prison or even to death with Jesus. So when the Lord honors you in some way, are you like Peter there at the Last Supper? Or are you like Peter at the end of Luke 24? Quiet. Acknowledging, realizing that any honor that we have is nothing but a gift from God. Anything good in us is nothing but a gift from God. So quiet courage is kind of what we see in Peter's life growing. That humble, quiet courage growing. He still had some correcting to go through, but it starts there at that empty tomb where he's marveling. It begins to set The pattern of his life. Is that the pattern of your life? Do you quickly confess Jesus Christ as the Messiah of God? Now, it appears as though perhaps when Peter said it, he was a good Arminian. I don't know that for sure. But maybe when he said it, he believed that he had in himself the ability to have this faith in and of himself. It it, it appears that way, looking at the pattern of his life but that later he would look back and realize I'm no rock I'm sand I'll be washed away if he doesn't hold on to me the faith he gave to me is a gift it didn't come from me it came from him and and you know as we go forward in time we'll look at first Peter we'll look at second Peter we'll look at the words of Peter that demonstrate how precious faith is to him Because if you can generate it from yourself, I mean, how valuable can it be? Right? Okay, next. Do you see pride in your life that that could lead you to deny Christ and to disobey him? Clinging to fantasy. And in Peter's specific situation, it's this idea of overestimating your own Abilities to be faithful to Christ, specifically. Um, but it, it's not limited to that. 
See, pride refuses to let go of unbelief. Pride refuses to be challenged and have those areas of our lives that are not pleasing to the Lord examined. And that's kind of a larger picture of what Peter did at the Last Supper that night. Right, because the better answer of Peter would have been, oh Lord, may it not be so. Please Lord, help me. Please Lord, tell me how this can change. Tell me how I could not, could live, could be the man between now and that moment of temptation to not have that come true. In what ways might you draw a sword against those who threaten your fantasy? Because ultimately that's what's going on here. Peter has an idea in his mind of who the Christ is. So part of Peter's failure is he needs a new idea of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. He did believe that Christ was the Messiah and even that was faith from God, but that faith was also mixed with error. It wasn't completely accurate thinking about Jesus. So what does he do to maintain that fantasy, that belief, that false belief about Jesus? Because, you know, he thought he was going to set the kingdom up right then. He can't die. He can't be crucified. He's going to set up the kingdom now. So do you, or in what ways do you draw a sword, you know, metaphorical, against those who threaten your fantasy? So you'll do it against the word of God. So those who threaten your fantasy are going to be those who bring the word of God to you. And you'll, you know, when you read the word of God, you might like, Some people want to cut certain pages out. That's a kind of a sword. Ignore certain portions that you're reading, not give attention to them. Not listen to God's word in in any form, to not give attention thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receiving it with faith and love. Storing it up in your heart and putting it to practice in your life. So, does Christ's resurrection next, we're talking about hope now, okay? Does Christ's resurrection bring you into all hope, no matter what the situation? I mean, we're going to see Peter throughout the book of Acts and others just exploding with hope and gladness and joy. And it's a rough life that they're going to be going through. But they're, they, prefer, they prefer reality. And they just walk in it more and more. Does that thrill your soul to consider that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and that he knows your name and that you are in him? And the hope of his resurrection is not just for after you die. Oh, yes. Brothers and sisters, there is that great blessed hope. We're going to pop up out of the dirt together someday if he doesn't return before then. We're going to pop up out of the dirt together with glorified bodies and we're going to rejoice. But what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean to you in your life right now today? In the hard times that you're going through, in the uncertainties that you are facing, whether it be health or employment or the nation in which we live apparently disintegrating and perhaps seeking to exist. We could go on and on, couldn't we? What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean to you in the midst of your sufferings right now? Your difficulties right now? Your challenges right now? You got to answer this question for yourself. Are you preaching the gospel to yourself? Are you mounting up, soaring to the heavens, praising him every day? Psalm 146, I will praise him every day. Uh, Well, except, you know, when I'm suffering. No, I will praise him every day. Are you mounting up with joy and praising him every day? Are you filled with gratitude for what he has given to you? I will give thanks at all times. Well, you know, except when things are going bad. No, do you give him thanks every day? Praising him every day. Look, what if God is calling you to raise up your children so every one of them can be martyred? What if no one else you ever share the gospel with will ever believe again? 
What if you never know another day without intense suffering and persecution in your life? Did Jesus Christ come back from the dead or not? <laughs> let, let whatever come, let it come. Because from whence does it come to us as his children? From whence does it come? From his loving, holy decrees for you because he loves you as his child and whatever will come to you comes from his sin. Oh, but Dr. Clark, my sin, my sin. Is he not sovereign over your sin? Oh, but Dr. Clark, uh, this, this world that we live in, all these evil people, is he not, are they not on his leash? Are they not his servants seeking to do you harm but doing you good instead because he has ordained it to be so? They killed Jesus Christ on the cross. The greatest crime that could ever happen. Put to death the prince of glory on the cross. Killed. And in that moment, victory is achieved. Because he came back from the dead, brothers and sisters. See, this is the life of hope. The constant meditation on an empty tomb. And a Jesus who loves you and knows your name and who is enthroned at the right hand of God and meets with us in our lives, in real life situations, like he did with Peter, like we'll see him doing with Paul, like we'll see him doing with many others as we go through the book of Acts. Oh, brothers and sisters, please, I beseech you, see Christ more than you see anything else. Yes, like Peter, who got up and ran to that tomb, Would that be your heart marveling in him every day? You see, this is how we're more than conquerors. You see, our countenance is not set by the world around us. Our countenance is set by the countenance of the Father upon us. So the only time we should have a distressed countenance is if we know that we've grieved the Father or we've quenched his spirit. And he will give us that distress. He will bless us with that. But when we return and we listen and we submit ourselves to him and we hear him, then his grief will be removed. Our countenance is in the countenance of heaven. We are bright and shining people because Mount Zion is always bright and shining. We are living in hope because Jesus Christ is living forever. Is this your life? No matter what. You see, we're going to go through hard times in our lives and we have to learn from them, okay? And first, the focus is going to be on the situation itself, okay? And there's lots of lessons to be learned in hard situations. But the second layer, and this is what is universal about every hard time. So the details of the situation, they'll vary. And you'll learn from those Varying details as you go through hard times. But the universal learning for every Christian comes down to this. What is God teaching you about your relationship with him, your faith towards him? What fantasy world is he destroying in your life through the suffering that comes into your life? And it may have nothing to do with the situation itself. You see, hard times are meant to throw open the door to your soul before God and say, oh God, show me everything that you would have me to learn right now, even if it has nothing to do with what's going on in this situation. Do you see? You see, we can limit our learning to the situation. And we kind of see that in Peter's life. But he grows and he learns over time. So the humble heart will cry out to God and say, oh Lord, Please teach me. Show me how I've sinned. Show me how I've not been wise in this situation. But also, Lord, please show me anything that you'd like to show me about myself at this time. And just bear our souls before the Lord. And you know, he loves us very much. And he will do in your life, in my life, like what we've seen him do in the life of Peter.
because he will sanctify us, brothers and sisters. And, you know, sometimes the house of cards coming down can be scary, marveling, fretting, but reality is a lot more joyful than fantasy. And he will take us into it. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you are the eternal, omnipotent, omniscient God and that you spoke all things into existence and that by your power alone, your voice, your word, all things are held together and that you have foreordained whatsoever comes to pass without exception down to the minutest detail of all things demonstrating your unmatched glory and power and might and wisdom. And we rejoice that you have condescended to come, put on flesh, becoming a man, a human being, our brother. We rejoice, O oh God, in your love and your compassion and your mercy towards us. And we rejoice in the life of Peter that you demonstrate the work of your mercy and your love in his life, giving him faith and growing him up, humbling him and blessing him in that humility. Lord, we ask that you would do the same in each one of us for your glory and in all of your church in the earth, we pray, O oh God, that we would indeed be the meek, the meek, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen.